Welcome to this week's sermon at Village Presbyterian Church. At Village, we seek to be shaped by the life of Christ, to practice authentic friendship, and serve the world. You're invited to join us at either our Mission Campus or our Antioch Campus. For now, we hope you hear a word for your own life in this sermon. Our scripture reading today comes from Psalm 119. I'll read just the 105th verse. As we come to this text, join me first in a word of prayer. Gracious God, because you are God, it is your word and your word alone that is life for us. And because you are gracious, we trust that even now you will speak to us. We are here, O God. We are listening. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Let us listen for God's Word for us. Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God shall stand forever. You know, every week, we take just a few verses or a story from this book, and we reflect on that. But every now and then, it's good to back up a little bit and pay attention to the overall narrative, the overarching story that is the Scripture. I want to do that today. So get comfortable. No need to take notes. Just take it in. Well, I'll leave a few parts out, but let me tell you the story. In the beginning, actually before anything was, God said, let there be light and life. And it was, and it was good. This is not a science story that tells us how the world came to be. It's a love story that tells us why there's a world at all. And it says the world and everything in it exists because God wants it to exist. And God created Adam. Adam is the Hebrew word for humankind. So this story, like all the stories in this book, they're stories about all of us. Adam is created by God, cared for by God, instructed by God. You can eat anything in the garden, but don't eat that. That's not good for you, God says. But Adam and Eve, they eat the that's not good for you fruit. It wasn't just disobedience. It was more complex than that. They actually thought they weren't doing something that wrong. Yeah, they knew what God said was good and bad, but they thought they knew better. That's what sin is. We seldom lack an understanding of what God wants from us. We just often think we know better. Sin against God quickly becomes sin against one another, and only four chapters in, Cain kills his brother Abel. Anytime someone is murdered or oppressed or ignored, or forgotten. We may think they are lesser, 
but to God they are our brothers and sisters. And God looks down on creation and thinks, this has not gone the way I intended. Maybe I can wash the bad away with a flood, and the flood comes, and the truth be told, it didn't change humanity a bit, but it did change God. God said, never again. Now at this point, we might think God is tempted to give up, to wash God's hands of this creation, but God can't give up. So God reaches out and calls a man named Abram. He calls him to leave his father's house, to leave life as he has known it, and, and to come and follow God to wherever God will lead him. Abram leaves it all behind, and he sets out on this road trip with nothing more than a promise from God. And God promised in part, I will bless you, but you will be a blessing to all the families of the earth. You know, the struggle for people of faith then and now is to remember that our relationship with God is never intended to be for our benefit alone. No, we all are blessed that we might be a blessing. The promise of God also promised descendants. This did not come easily. After some conniving, there was Ishmael. And after some time and testing, there was Isaac. Then there was Jacob and Esau and Joseph and his brothers. They became the 12 tribes of Israel. These patriarchs, we call them, they were more than flawed, but they were also the folks through whom this promise lived the descendants of Abraham soon enough found themselves in slavery in Egypt under an old Pharaoh. They cried out to God, and God heard their cry. And God raised up Moses, who would lead them across the sea and into the wilderness. They would journey out again with nothing more than a promise that God had a home waiting for them. The Exodus is a defining moment for Israel. It shows that God hears the cry of the oppressed and that she pays attention to her children from the bottom up. Like Abraham's journey before him, Moses sets out leading this people with nothing but a promise. And in the midst of these wilderness wanderings, God gives them the Ten Commandments. It was a gift, really. Uh, like their first conversation, like God's first conversation in the garden, you can eat anything, just don't eat that. It's not good for you. In the Ten Commandments, God says, live this way, but don't live that way. It's not good for you. But like Adam and Eve before us, sometimes God's people hear the command of God, but we disobey it because we think we know better. After Moses died, it was Joshua who led this people into the land that God had promised them. And there they were led by people we call judges. There was Deborah and Gideon and Samson among them. But they began to look around and they noticed that other nations didn't have judges. They had 
kings. And they wanted to be like other nations. Now, this is important for people of faith then and now. It's important to understand how is our faith supposed to make us like others? And in what ways does our faith call us to be distinctive from others? Israel wanted to be like all the other nations. They demanded a king. So God anointed Saul, had Saul anointed to be the first king of Israel. It was David who followed Saul, and he was forever seen as the king to be remembered and the king to be hoped for. Israel would forever yearn for a son of David who would come again and would rule in justice and righteousness. That son of David would be called the Messiah. After King David, his son Solomon became king, and Solomon built a beautiful temple, a house for God, and he built a not-too-shabby house for himself as well. The temple would become not just the center of Jewish life, but the center of the universe, for it was there in the temple that the very throne of God was understood to, to rest. Now, after the reign of Solomon, Israel divided north and south, uh, ten tribes called Israel in the north, two tribes called Judah in the south. There were a series of kings that followed both in the north and in the south, some of them faithful, but most of them were not. The problem with the kings is they had so much power. And when you have power, it's always hard to prioritize what someone else wants, even if that someone else is God. Power is the primary vehicle to set aside morality. That's why the powerful have an additional burden of responsibility, because the immorality of the powerful often injures the less powerful. Knowing this and seeing this, God sent prophets. It was Elijah and Elisha. Nathan was the prophet for David. There would then be the literary prophets, we call them Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos, and the others. They were, they were poets more than anything else, really. They offered word paintings of a day we have yet to see but a day God promises is our home. Usually the prophets had two basic concerns. The first is they said God is not casual about worship. Uh, worship is not just an experience for us. It's a practice and a discipline, a regular returning to the source of our life, something we do with gratitude and humility. And secondly, the prophets remind us that God is attentive to the whole community. And so when things are not right in our relationships with one another, that gets God's attention. A common example is poverty. God is not casual about poverty. When poverty is present, it's not just an unfortunate thing. It's a sign that the community is broken if you have a family dinner 
and the adults use their power to keep the small children away from the meal, that's not just a dysfunctional family. That's, that's wrong. The prophet said God sees our communities that way. Now, most of the time, Israel ignored the prophets. And so over time, they began to crumble from within. When morality is ignored, communities erode from within. And so in time, the Assyrians, they overran a weakened northern kingdom, and they scattered the ten tribes of Israel across the Assyrian Empire. And 150 years later, Judah, weakened from the inside, was overrun by the Babylonians. They, they burned the temple. They marched the leaders of Judah back to Babylon where they lived in captivity. This was called exile, and exile raised all kinds of questions in, among God's people. Had God finally given up on us? Had God had enough? Has God turned God's back on us? And if not, how do we live faithfully in a land that is not our home? Well, God sent prophets in exile, and they made it clear that God has not given up. God can't give up. And they began to remind Israel of their calling and of the dreams that God has for God's own children. These dreams are not small. These dreams are that justice would roll down like waters, that swords would be beaten into plowshares, that the law of God would be etched into the human heart so that all of us would live as God intends us to live. The prophets never let go of these dreams. And after a generation in exile, the Babylonian captives were allowed to come home where they had a lot of rebuilding to do. For about 400 years, the story gets kind of quiet until in the wilderness in Israel, there emerges this bug-eating, baptizing prophet-preacher man named John who says that the kingdom of God is coming near. About that time, that same spirit who at the very beginning hovered over the waters and, and brought forth creation, that same spirit, she hovers over a Galilean girl named Mary and brings forth new creation. And in this act, this Word of God that was first spoken to bring a world into being that was later spoken to, to Adam and Eve and was spoken to the patriarchs and through the prophets, this Word now takes on skin and dwells among us. And Jesus would talk of the promised day of God, and he would tell stories of seeds and weeds and surprisingly good Samaritans and some found him troubling, even offensive, even dangerous. They said he had come to destroy our way of life. They weren't completely wrong about that. 
but others found him magnetic. He called followers to leave life as they had known it behind and to road trip with him toward a promised day. He taught them to pray. He taught them to care for one another. He taught them to try to see the world the way God sees the world. He taught them to be with one another the way God intends all human relationships to be. They weren't great at it, but they tried their best. Now look, God's ways are not like our ways, so it doesn't matter when or where Jesus would come. He could come at any time, in any nation, to any generation, and we would want to kill him. The Romans and the religious leaders, they wanted that as well. Now look, they didn't invent the cross for Jesus. Crucifixion was business as usual in the empire. It's the way they responded and treated anyone that they assumed came to destroy their way of life. Jesus faced their way and refused to let their ways define his way. So his crucifixion was not a tragedy. It was a revelation that there is no end to what God will do to redeem the world that God loves. And because God will stop at nothing, even when Jesus was killed, he came back. They said he is risen. And soon enough, the risen Christ began to show up in those who followed him. They began to form communities to reflect his life and teaching. In these communities, women were respected, slaves were welcomed. The poor were not recipients of mission, but they were included as part of the families. Leaders in these early, small, fragile communities began to write letters to one another as they began to think together how to be faithful in this land that is not our home. They addressed ordinary questions like how to be faithful in the market or in the family or in the church family. And they addressed the bigger-than-life questions like how to live not defined by fear, but by hope and love when you're living in a land that is not your home. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ did not bring to completion the old dreams that the prophets talked about, but His life, death, and resurrection did show us what those dreams actually look like. And so followers of Jesus continue to live toward those dreams, to live toward that promised day. Now, the very end of the story ends with a promise. We call it revelation. It, it is a word of hope for people who know the worst in this world, for people who know to say that someday the world might end is not a threat, but it's a promise because their greatest fear is that the world as it is might never come to an end. Now, Revelation says God will repair it all. 
that this world is not insignificant or a mistake, and you are never insignificant. So don't be afraid. Just with all that you are, live toward that promised day. This is the story of the Bible. It's the story of our God and our lives. It is a story of a God who will stop at nothing to redeem the creation that God so loves. It is a story of ordinary people in whom the word spoken from the very beginning and repeated in patriarch and prophet, in judges and disciples, embodied in fragile communities, that holy word continues to live in ordinary people like you and me. And we're not always great at it, but we do the best we can. And that word calls us to set out on our own road trip to live toward that promised day, a day which we have yet to know, but a day that is our home and a day that God has promised to us. And like Abraham, and like Moses, like the prophets and the disciples, it calls us to leave behind life as we have known it and to strike out toward that day of promise. And like them, we have nothing more than God's promise. That and the testimony of those who have trusted it before and have told us that in this we find our life and our home, for the promise of God is forever reliable. Pray with me. Gracious God, we believe. Help our unbelief. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon at Village Presbyterian Church. Learn more about us at villagepres.org. And we invite you to join us again next week.